This is Inspiring Women, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Nishi Rawa. She is the Chief Clinical Officer of Bamboo Health. She is an entrepreneur. She is a physician who has dedicated her career towards public health, to solving important critical issues in the area of behavioral health. She founded Open Beds, which was purchased by Bamboo Health. She has done her training at Johns Hopkins and Harvard. And Dr. Rawat, thank you for being on Inspiring Women. Great. Thanks for having me, Lori. All right. Well, let's just like dive in. Um, so it's we're sort of like at the end, in the beginning of 2023, moving into 2024. What does day to day look like at Bamboo Health? Tell us about your work. Yeah, sure. So at um, Bamboo, we provide solutions at the point of care uh, to better manage behavioral health conditions, namely mental health and, and substance use disorder conditions. Uh, so we have products uh, related to prevention, um, improving access to care with the Open Beds product, for example, um, along with uh, improving care coordination. Uh, and right now, personally, um, I'm focused on what's next for uh, the company and um, for cracking this behavioral health nut more generally uh, with a, a service a human service added to our technology to, to get people to definitive assessment and, and treatment um, as quickly as possible. Well, I really do want to talk about sort of, you know, what is happening in this area of behavioral health and substance um, use disorders and uh, because you've done so much work in that area. But before we get into that, I just love to get a bit of the bio sketch. So, you know, as an ED physician, critical care physician, how did you turn your attention towards um, being an entrepreneur and solving the problem and behavioral health specifically? Yeah, sure. So, um, circuitous path, <laughs> but, but here I am. Uh, yeah. So, um, as you mentioned, I spent the bulk of my career practicing, uh, critical care medicine, um, within Johns Hopkins medicine and, um, Look, as a medical practitioner, I got little to no training with respect to mental health and, and substance use disorder care. And yet day in, day out, that was what I was seeing, um, especially with respect to, to overdoses. And as medical clinicians, what do we do when you, you don't have the right tools at your fingertips? When you don't have the knowledge base, you you do what you know, which is take care of the, the medical issues. But that was just a band-aid, right? Mm -hmm. um, so after doing that over and over again, and after watching my colleagues do the same thing, right? You get an overdose, um, you resuscitate the individual, you send them home, but you don't address their fundamental addiction, for example. Um, I realized that I, I need to do more. And so that sent me down the path of developing open beds to improve access to both mental health and substance use disorder care. Uh, and then, um, built the company. And um, as you mentioned, um, it was later acquired by by Bamboo Health. And then uh, we've scaled it since from three states now to 15 going on 17 states, which is which is fantastic and, and helping people along the way. It is fantastic. And, you know, starting something, I know a lot of ED physicians um, and they have no energy whatsoever to put towards sort of like solving the problems. It's, you know, just the things that I see in friends and colleagues is exhaustion. 
and systems, and broken processes. So maybe just like on open bed, so like, you know, where it started in terms of that entrepreneurial and doing more where I don't even know where you got the energy. Um, Uh, Can you just talk about that? Like, you know, what what were you solving? What does it look like when it's broken, what you had to deal with um, in the ED? Yeah, sure. So I was, the only reason I was laughing was because, I mean, I thought that I had the energy, right? So for a very long time, I was working weekends and nights in the ICU and then also trying to build a business during the day. And then that was, it was just not um, Mm -hmm. sustainable as you can imagine. And so that, that had to stop. Uh, But um, yeah, I mean, I, the, the challenge was just what I, what I communicated in that first of all, I was doing wrong by patients. And then when you have a couple of astute individuals, parents tell you that what you're doing is wrong, (laughs) that's a wake up call. And it's hard not to do otherwise. Um, I'll give you an example. There was a young kid who had overdosed, resuscitated. Uh, The next day I walk into his room and like, okay, you're good to go home. Right. And his parents said, absolutely not. <laughs> We're not taking him home. He needs, yeah. he needs to get care and you need to help us. And I didn't know how to help them. Right. We, we had a social worker. What they would do is hand the kid, the family, a list of resources and go fend for yourselves, but that's, that's not helpful. And so something, something needed to be done. And it was it like, I just couldn't ignore it. Right. So you, you find the energy or you, you know, you prioritize and you, you do what you need to do. So open beds, when you created that, that was sort of like, you know, helping, you know, take that extra step to take the piece of paper of resources and actually get care for these patients were in, in between states. So what, what did, what does open beds literally do? Yeah, sure. Um, so look, and I'll be the first to admit it's not rocket science with respect to technology, but it, it takes a village. And what this technology does is brings the village together, all the stakeholders together, um, mm-hmm. working within one system. And so what it does is it provides transparency regarding the availability or capacity of inpatient and outpatient mental health and substance use disorder services in a region. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, then it enables referring clinicians, for example, a social worker in the emergency department to see that availability and, and send a referral. It's what we call now it's, you know, commonplace closed loop referral systems, send a referral, get feedback regarding the outcome of that referral. Uh, and then um, we sell to state governments. We work with state governments in particular. They are able to get data regarding who's getting access, who's not, what types of individuals are falling through the cracks and what's working with respect to care delivery and what's not to, mm-hmm. to make improvements. So that's at a high level what it does. And then we've got a new crisis management uh, module, which combined with open beds now underpins the, the 988 uh, system. I don't know if you've heard of that, um, the, the federal 988 system. It's like it's 911, like, but if you're you're having the like prevention hotline. Correct. Yeah, it's it's been rebranded to, to 988. Yeah. Um, and so, <clears throat> excuse me, now this technology underpins that that system so that those crisis operators um, and uh, mobile crisis team respondents 
again, have transparency. They can uh, dispatch or an operator can do their intake, dispatch a mobile crisis team all digitally. And then they can also refer people to definitive assessment and, and treatment using the system. So it's, well, it's you, really nice. You, like ground us in. Um, so like, I, I talked to a lot of people about, you know, so the opioid crisis, you know, behavioral health. But like, where are we? I mean, there is there are there any bright spots? I mean, 988 is a bright spot, I would say, in terms of having that type of national resource. But are, maybe just ground us in where are we um, with crisis today, end of 23, beginning of 24? Are we going, is anything going in the right direction in terms of solving this? Um, you know, with respect to the opioid epidemic, which is an official public health emergency, I don't see any bright spots. Uh, look, you know, deaths topped 110,000 last year. We're seeing more disparities. Uh, so deaths with respect to um, those who are black and brown, it's going like this, right? <laughs> Relatively speaking, um, yeah, I don't I don't see any breath bright spots. Fentanyl is on the rise. More and more people are dying from fentanyl. Uh it's a potent um substance that's now in the in the drug supply. It's the drug of choice for for many. Um no. And then the the drivers, I would say are not getting better either. <laughs> those are the, the drivers, the ones that we need to, that we need to tackle those. So you've got the way I think about the drivers very simply so that they're top of mind for me and, and others. Um, you've got physical pain, mental pain, and economic pain. Uh, so without me even getting into the details, you can tell me that, you know, that those are not moving in the right direction. Right. Um, right. So, so, yeah. so in terms of just, you know, what, what is out there? So we've got a crisis that is only wor worsening a public health emergency. And, but this particular crisis also comes with it a lot of, um, stigma, um, and a lot of bias. And so people's empathy, for solving the crisis also is not there at the level that it needs to be to match the moment of, you know, what are these um, issues? So in terms of, um, you know, how you're going about solving it in terms of providing technology solutions, matching resources um, to people, maybe let's just start with the stigma and sort of like, you know, how that plays into the obstacles to getting to improvements in care, the right care, or what's sure. yeah look um stigma fundamentally is at the root of all of the obstacles and i don't think i'm exaggerating here it's responsible for the lack of parity uh and and what i mean by that is that um the payment parity uh so uh still to this day you have um substance use disorders which are not being paid for at par relative to physical health conditions and i won't get into details but you've got stigma which is driving payment parity you've got um stigma that is driving the lack of our lack of execution with respect to um uh getting people to evidence-based care. So we, we know what works for opioid use disorder, for example. We've known what works for now 40 years. It's in the, the literature in volumes. <laughs> uh, and um, what works is medications for opioid use disorder, buprenorphine, methadone are two examples combined with behavioral health counseling. And yet 
if I overdose and I'm in an emergency department today, the likelihood of me being connected to life-saving evidence-based care that we've known for 40 years, 10%, 10%, right? 10%. Yes, 10%. And it's been like that for years. Is it 10% on the medications and the counseling or is it it one one over the other? Yeah, Uh combined, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, yes, uh, stigma is the, the, the major obstacle here. So what, what is, what is delivered instead of evidence-based medicine? Are people turned away? Are they like, like that story you just told of that child, you know, whose uh, parents would not let them let that child come home. That's right. So sent home likely without a list. Right. Um, if the social worker, if it was after hours, I probably wouldn't have even had a social worker on hand to support that family in, in any way. Yeah. Nisha, if I could just ask, you know, in terms of tackling um, the behavioral health substance abuse um, disorder, you know, what are some of the things that Bamboo Health is doing in this area? Yeah, sure. So I, I, as I mentioned earlier, um, we provide products that tackle uh, uh, prevention um, along with um, access to care and, and care coordination as people move from one setting to the other. So with respect to prevention, we are the prescription drug monitoring program a software vendor to 45 states and territories. Uh, and that's really important. We've demonstrated um, numerous times that the our, our products, our PDMP products, uh, our use of those products correlate to a decrease in um, op- opioid dispensations as well as um, um, opioid prescribing. Uh, so that's that's important. Um, I mentioned uh, with respect to our open beds line of products, what we do is try to connect people to the the care that they need, mental health and substance use disorder care. Our crisis management module underpins the the 988 program in in several states right now, uh, digitizing the crisis care continuum uh, so operators can use our system to do intake. Uh, dispatch mobile crisis teams, and then get people to definitive uh, uh, assessment and, and treatment, whatever they need in their yeah. communities. And then finally, uh, we have a product related uh, to admission discharge transfer notifications. Uh, yeah. So for example, we let a behavioral health provider, an outpatient behavioral health clinician know that they're member or their patient is in the emergency department, let's say having an an overdose. And so then they know to connect that individual to care uh, as soon as they're discharged from the emergency department. Um, So it's a lot of solutions and we know Bamboo Health is growing, which is, which is great, but also just based on other comments, we also know that so much more is needed. It's not enough. Uh, there's so yeah. much more to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so maybe let's just start on the dollars, okay? Because I think what lots of people are seeing in the news are things from opioid settlements, and we're seeing money flowing through. Isn't yeah. that a good thing? Isn't that going to be helpful? What do you think about that in terms of being helpful to solving the problem? Yeah, sure. So look, money makes the world go round and we'll see whether these settlement dollars will will have an effect. Um, But certainly I would say financial incentives are key and you've got to incentivize the right behavior. And before you can incentivize the right behavior, you need to be able to measure the right behavior. Uh, So 
that base, providers and plans need to be held accountable with key metrics and and dollars tied to those metrics. Right now for hospitals, freestanding hospitals, there are very few incentives to treat someone suffering from substance use disorder, right? Um, We're seeing the beginnings of the right incentives within Medicaid uh, and um, for for Medicaid managed care organizations with states leveraging uh, the behavioral health care coordination HEDIS metrics that have been put out by the NCQA, right? So, uh, for example, um, a state will pay a Medicaid managed care organization in that state a capitated rate, and then a certain proportion of that rate is withheld unless they meet a certain threshold of... Um, care, for example, getting someone who has substance use disorder in the emergency department, getting them to care within seven days. And so we're seeing more and more states tying dollars uh, to those metrics for the, the Medicaid managed care organizations within their states. So that, again, that's that's the beginning of change, but we're there's not nearly enough change, I would say, especially with respect to to hospitals and and primary care. So then what else can, so what else besides the financial systems, you know, are you recommending? Yeah, sure. So I I would say, again, I can't underscore enough that (laughs) the the financial incentives are, there are important. Um, Aside from that, uh, it's, it's just, it's incredibly hard to, to access care. Uh, I recently, for example, um, tried to reach a number of treatment providers. This is substance use disorder providers in in a Midwestern state. My goal was to um, onboard them to this this service that we're providing, this new service, and have them be a part of the treatment provider network. Laurie, look, (laughs) I called a dozen providers. It took me on average, I I talked to six people. Initially it was a non-human to a non-human. <laughs> and then, you know, on average six people to get to a voicemail. And then three people called me back. Can you imagine? I, I mean, if you're someone who's in need of care. Right. I, I thought that perhaps I, I just I couldn't believe that we're still at the place we're at right now uh, where and it's the same place we were at, you know, five or six years ago when I founded Open Beds um, anyway. And so it's, it's just incredibly hard. To, to, to access care. Well, it's right like now. pushing pushing the boulder uphill. Right. Like you said you're here, you're solving the problem, being on the other end, you know, of the problem, dealing with somebody who is in the situation of an overdose, of a disorder, you right. know, with substances. Uh I, I I think there probably isn't a person out there who doesn't have some story, who knows of someone, you know, a family member, a friend, a community member who's dealing with it. So um well, I, I like, right but, but, like, but Lori, I'll so tell you one thing I mean I, the one thing I will say is like I don't want to fault the providers what they're dealing with on the other end is incredible shortage of staff right right they don't have enough people um who are who are skilled to do the necessary work and overwhelming demand uh so that 
that is part of the problem as well in terms of access to care. It's just the, the severe shortage of, of qualified staff to carry out this work. So we've got stigma and bias. We have misalignment around um, around financial incentives. Maybe some programs that are going to begin to um, you know be helpful. But we've got a scaling problem as well. How do you see things like community based collaborations or organizations? Is there are there other things to pull on? to make some needed progress towards solutions. We're gonna be in this for years. Yeah, sure. Um, it, it, you know, I'll, I'll say one thing, which is that people tend to want to interact with people who look like them and, and sound like they do not, you know, um, and, and typically it's not a physician, it's not your typical profile of physician. And so where we're seeing bright spots, for example, you've got the community health worker movement, um, people who are embedded, uh, in, in schools, in community centers, in, um, grocery stores, for example, uh, and so this is the places that that people frequent. Um, you've got individuals who know the local communities. They know the local customs and cultures, and and so they can better interact with with those in in need, and and that the care resonates with the people in in need. Um, so I I think that that's the one bright spot. Um, is it it's scalable? There are a couple of models out there that people are trying to scale this model, and, and us included, we're we're trying to scale that that kind of model. Um, but I would say it's 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 to be to be determined. Yeah. Do you in the communities are you able to garner so so stigma is often you know if you can garner empathy from um, from people in a in a more localized um, area. Those seem to be, you know, solutions that matter when you bring it not broader, but smaller um, in terms of, you know, so are you seeing that in terms of some of these collaborations that you're doing or is it too early to? I think it's too early that? to say. Um, certainly people, because of the stigma, also want to be cared for in an, an anonymous way, I would say. And um that's not always conducive to hyper-local community-based care. Yeah, uh, We know, for example, one thing that's working with the pandemic, a lot of care, as you know, switched from brick and mortar to virtual care. And with the pandemic now over, uh, physical health care, for the most part, has gone back to brick and mortar care. But mental health substance use disorder care, it hasn't. Like People are still yep. frequenting care in a virtual way. Uh, so that's, I think, incredibly helpful with respect to scaling access to care. I, I think the challenge is how do you provide that type of care in a way that, that resonates with the individual that is um, culturally specific, community specific? That's that's really the, the challenge. So hyper-localized virtual scalable care. Yep. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, I think that's the Holy grail. Yeah. yeah. Do you think, uh, do you think Nishi in terms of just, you know, there's all obviously in the world of technology solutions um, in healthcare, there's so much excitement and potential opportunity out there um, with AI and other things like that. Will that play a role in any, in, in any way? 
I'm going to sound like a Luddite here, but I mean, there's just, there's so much low hanging fruit. As I said, you know, let's just execute on getting people medications for opioid use disorder, starting yeah. in the emergency department. Let's just do it. We know it works. <laughs> right? yeah. like AI is not going to solve that. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Is AI going to solve the staffing shortage? I, I I'm skeptical as to whether yeah. a chat bot can truly replace um, a, a human week on week compassionate yeah. care. Uh, but, but yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So Nishi, just because um, you are so dedicated to this um, and you have been working on it for a while and the problem is of such magnitude, just for yourself as a leader, as somebody who is just, you know, embedded in terms of just like addressing um, this, this crisis, how do you, how do you get up every day, put your leadership hat on knowing what you're up against and just have the energy to like keep pushing and trying to find an advance towards, um, getting access, getting solutions out there. It's really easy. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I believe that this is probably one of the most intractable problems of our generation. Uh, and so it's quite easy to get up in the morning and if you like big problems, <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, and, and, and just knowing that a lot of people out there are suffering, seeing it in our data, for example. Um, yeah, that's what, that's what keeps me going. And, and look, you know, I, I miss, for example, as a physician, you make a difference at an individual level day after day. Uh, I, I miss that to a certain extent, but at the same time, I, I do, I do appreciate the opportunity to make a difference um, at a, a population base level. Yeah. That's, um, that's actually amazing and really wonderful to hear. Again, you know, another issue that we know is out there for physicians broadly and generally speaking is this feeling of burnt out. And, um, you know, sometimes that burnout is from not having obvious solutions, addressing the low hanging fruit that physicians are having to, you know, obstacles to just doing what they signed up for when they became um, a physician. So when you talk to or with your 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 colleagues out there, your physicians or out there who are maybe not feeling um, optimistic and you know more feeling those signs of burnout, what do you say to them? What do I say to them? Yeah, it's tough. Look, I mean the what's driving physician sentiment these days is just is lack of autonomy right um and that lack of autonomy is due to multiple factors but i would say mainly at least for me it was the increase in the administrative burden brought on by technology for the most part and then unrealistic incentives that were not in keeping with my personal morals and values right so that led me to feel like a just a, a cog in the wheel and, and i I felt like I was treated as such. And I, I, I'm not alone. I know that a lot of my colleagues, current, former, um, feel the same way. Uh, as you mentioned, many of us went into medicine because we wanted to help people. <laughs> Very pure and, and naive, quite frankly. But I, I think that the one thing that I... I would tell my colleagues is that there are other things that you can do, right. Um, to inspire yourself. 
and then, you know, for, for younger physicians, uh, the bright spot, quite frankly, is that I, I think that their eyes wide open much more so than perhaps I was back in the day, along with my colleagues, uh, they know what they're getting into. Um, and I think that they're much more prepared for the the realities of what medicine is today. Yeah. Well, I find that quite frankly, so inspiring Nishi. And maybe as we just close out this inspiring woman conversation, <laughs> You know, if you were to talk to younger women who are out there who are maybe considering, you know, a work of medicine or a work of addressing a public health um, crisis, what advice would you give them? Um, that's a good one. Uh, have you seen Barbie? The movie? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Okay. I think I saw it late. I just saw it a couple of days ago. And I'm not, you know, I'm not a Barbie person at all. Never was. Uh, and when people said it's a great movie, I was kind of like, yeah, right. But I watched <laughs> it. I watched it. Uh, and if you recall, towards the end, one of the main characters steps up and delivers this soliloquy about how it's impossible to be a woman, right? And then she enumerates all the ways in which it's impossible to be a woman, I think, which resonates with many of us. Very detailed, right? It, you, you have to be thin, but not too thin. You have to be smart, but not too smart. You know, like you have to like people's ideas, but then you can't like them too much, but at the same time, you can't swish them so that they're non-existent, right? on and on and on. And then she ends with, I'm sick and tired of watching myself and other women tie themselves in knots for others to to like them now i'm you know i'm mucking up what she said but that's what that's what she ended with and so my advice would be don't tie yourself up in knots and i know that's easier said than done so i would practice undoing a knot <laughs> every <laughs> yeah if you can yeah. Okay. That is, that's actually awesome. I mean, so the Barbie movies is inspiring and I love the don't tie yourself in knots and practice untying yourself um, from a knot. This has been an amazing, inspiring woman conversation. I've been speaking with Dr. Nishi Rabla and Nishi, thank you so much. Oh, it's been great to, to talk to you, Lori. This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.